Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Well, thank you, Deb, for doing the Bible reading today. Okay, um, what's the point of the Old Testament? Bit of a provocative statement, but roughly two-thirds, three-quarters of our Bible. What does this part of the Bible teach us? Can you give me some ideas? Point towards Jesus? Absolutely. Any others? Character of God, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so one thing which I learned when I was a young Christian and which has stuck with me is that the Old Testament teaches us about who God is. In the Old Testament, there's page after page showing us what type of God we believe in, what he loves, what he hates, what he wants, what is his nature, what he has done, how his plans are fulfilled, and how he works his sovereign purpose. Now, that's not the only thing the Old Testament teaches us, as some of the things were shared earlier. I think if we were to try to put a list together, it would be infinite. There's so many things we can learn from it. It's just simply one, but it's a useful way to think about it. The Old Testament teaches us about who our God is. I shared with you during our praise points a number of months ago that I'd been greatly encouraged and enriched by reading Isaiah very slowly with a commentary beside me. Reading through each verse and working hard to try and understand what it was saying. My reasoning for this is what I've read the Bible through a couple of times and a feature of doing that is that um, excuse me, sorry um The feature of doing that is you tend to have to read very quickly if you want to get through it in, say, a year. You really need to power through. By doing this method, you pick up the overall narrative and you pick up some insights along the way, but you tend to miss the detail and the nuances. And even if you do pick them up, you tend to quickly forget them. That's my experience anyway. And I've also found that the times that I've read the Bible through when I finish, I fall into a bit of a rut. I found it hard to stay motivated. It's hard to know what to read next. When you're so used to reading four chapters a day, it's hard to change pace. A few years ago, I was at a conference and the speaker gave some talks which I found really helpful. And when I was in the bookstore one day, I saw that he had written a commentary on Isaiah and it looked reasonably approachable. And each of the times I'd read through Isaiah, I'd come out thinking, I really didn't understand that. It's, um, it reminds me, there's a scene in the movie Notting Hill where William Thacker, who owns a travel bookstore, I believe, 
don't know how that's going at the moment. But anyway, he decides to take Anna Scott, who's a Hollywood blockbuster star, to a dinner party with his friends. They recognise who she is, except for one. I don't remember what his name is, but he was a stockbroker and he's always telling people how bad he is at his job. Anyway, he manages to go through the entire dinner party without realising that he's sitting in the company of one of the most famous women in the world. That's a bit how I've felt after reading Isaiah. I'm not sure what I missed or how much or how big it was, but I'm pretty sure it was big and I'm pretty sure there was a lot. So for reasons I can't fully remember, I began to read Isaiah very slowly with this book beside me. If it dealt with six verses, I read six verses, and if it dealt with one, I read one. I've looked back in my notebook, and it started in about mid-May 2016, and I finished it on the 6th of June this year. So just over a year of reading through Isaiah. Remarkably, I didn't get bored at any stage, and I didn't have to stop and have a break. I know these things are personal, but for me, I think reading this part of the Bible in this way at that time made a lot of sense. At the end, did I know Isaiah really well? Well, not really. Certainly I know it better. I have a better view of the structure and some of the key passages, but it's still very much a pool that I could keep exploring for a long time. But there are some things that I really took away from this time of reading. I just want to share some of those with you. The first one was that God has a plan. That's a plan for us in this world. And it's the same plan that he had from the beginning. And it shines through Isaiah. The second one was how much the New Testament refers to Isaiah, generally in quotes which Jesus or the Gospel writers use, such that the themes raised in Isaiah are so relevant to the message which Jesus delivered. Thirdly, the themes of judgment and salvation are recurring and crucial key ideas which sit behind the messages which Isaiah delivers. Fourthly, how the new heavens and new earth are referred to in Isaiah 65, where I'd only ever thought it was in Revelation. Fifth, the absolute hatred God has for idols. And finally, an aspect which stood out for me was the comfort which I was able to take from so many of the passages in Isaiah, particularly chapters 40 onwards. Our God is a God who really loves his people, who really cares for his creation, who wants to make things right and good, and who wants to be intimately involved with his people. It's this last point that I want to share with you today as a taste of some of the comfort and security which God provides to us through the words of the prophet Isaiah. I wouldn't say this passage is the high point of Isaiah or really significant in any way, but what I do know is it's a passage that I found encouraging and which I decided I wanted to share with you today. The passage opens with an ongoing complaint. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Or, if you're reading the NIV, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. The verbs say or speak or complain in the original language imply an open-endedness, implying that this is not just a once-off complaint but an ongoing one. So you could read it like this. 
Why do you say over and over again and complain over and over again, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? To me, this question is not a challenge to God. It's not saying, I hate you or I can no longer believe in you because of this or that. It comes across to me as a type of despondency, a type of despair. The message translation puts it as follows. God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. The Holman Bible says, My way is hidden from the Lord. My claim is ignored by my God. If I were to put it in my own words, I would say this. God doesn't care about me. He's oblivious to my needs. It's a feeling that this is not the way it's meant to be. It's really a despondency with our situation, which I think we can relate to. I think that's why this passage can speak to us today, even though it was written so long ago. It speaks to the feeling that even though we believe in God, things are not always working out the way they should. Maybe you're thinking one of the following. My life isn't that great right now. My marriage is hard at the moment. My kids aren't listening to me. We're trying really hard, but we're spending more than we earn. This sore foot just won't get better. This cold won't go away. I haven't spoken to my parents for two years. I can't find a job. I've had chronic fatigue for ten years. Or my business is struggling to make a profit. I remember a time about nine years ago. It was of my first year of work and I can't fully remember why, but things were not going well. Well, that was how I felt. Anyway, at this time, I went over to a friend's place to watch the State of Origin. When I went out to get my car at the end of the game, the passenger window was smashed, the glove box was open, the console was opened, CDs were gone, logbooks gone. There was nothing crucial, there was nothing outrageous that was missing. But I'd only had the car for a few months, and now I had to get a new passenger window. My memory was it cost like $700 or something quite expensive at the time, and my insurance excess at that time, given my age, was... 1,600, so that wasn't going to help. And I remember I just felt really, really low. I felt like things were not going well. And I remember calling my dad and telling him about it and really feeling like I just needed him to listen. I needed someone to hear what was going wrong. And this question reminds me of how I felt at that time. Like I wasn't important. That my problems were not visible to or important to God that nothing I was trying to do was working out. And this is the situation which Isaiah speaks to. The words which we are looking at are actually a prophecy. They were written by Isaiah, looking forward to the Babylonian captivity 150 years in the future. Isaiah is writing, looking forward to the time when the people of God would be outside of the promised land and would have been in captivity for a number of years. And that would have been a time of despondency for the Israelites. They had been promised a land and theirs had been a story of progression towards that land. And it reached its height in the reign of King Solomon. But from there it went down and down. The kingdom split. The northern kingdom was taken over. And finally the southern kingdom was also taken over. 
and the people of Judah were taken over to Babylon. So here they were, God's chosen people, reduced to a group of exiles, living away from their promised land. And I think that would be a case for despondency. A case for saying, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God. They'd certainly lost a lot more than I lost when my car was broken into. So how does Isaiah respond? He responds in three ways. He talks about who God is, what God does, and what we should do. This question actually falls in the middle of a section in which Isaiah is already talking about who God is. If you read through Isaiah 40 from the beginning to this point, which I would encourage you to do, you'll come across verses 12 to 17 that talk about how infinitely great God is and how it's hard for us to comprehend. I'm just going to read those to you now. So Isaiah 40, 12 to 17. It says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Who did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The comparisons given are outrageous, but I think that's deliberate. We're all human, and I think one of the traps of being human is that we tend to put God in the image of a human. And without thinking, we give him human character traits, like changing his mind or being grumpy. It's really what the Israelites are doing with the question in verse 27. Having your rights disregarded or your way disregarded is quite common in human relationships. People are generally reliable, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they do let you down. And this kind of talking, it's almost putting those human character traits on God, but he's not beset by our frailties. What Isaiah tells us in 12 to 17 is that God is incomparably great. In verses 18 to 26, he continues to talk about how great God is, how God is greater than idols, and reaches the height of ridicule in verse 25, where it says, to whom will you compare me that I would be like him? So he flips the comparison from what you expect. Normally you'd be expected to say, who is like God? This time he says, put God next to anyone and see how they compare. It's not a comparison that's really going to go well for anyone, being put with God next to them. In this light, the question in some ways has already been answered by the verses which went before it. If this is the God you are talking about, then how could you, your way be hidden from him 
And how could your right be disregarded by him? But we'll go on to the main verses we're looking at today. Verse 28 says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. If you're feeling despondent, if you feel like your way is hidden from God, then know this, the Lord is the everlasting God. He was there at the beginning of the world and he will be there at the end of the world. He will not leave you because he cannot leave you by virtue of the fact that he's always going to be there. He can't leave you. He does not grow faint or weary. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. As hard as things get, as difficult as your challenges will be, God is able to withstand them and he will be able to see them through. He's God. He doesn't need eight hours sleep. He isn't too busy. He isn't unable to help. A correct picture of God knows that when all hope is lost, God is still there. When the situation is perilous or difficult, he will remain. And when you have nothing left, he will be as fresh as he was a thousand years ago. This is another aspect of God I think we can struggle to get our heads around because we're human. I'm 33 years old and I watched a lot of sport growing up. The first people you tend to approach in age are the swimmers. For a while they're older than you, then all of a sudden they're the same age. And then pretty quickly they're younger than you and the commentators are the ones that were your age. Like, how did that happen? And so it's, you go through the sports, like footballers are nearly all younger than me now and I'm getting old for a cyclist. Um, Richie Port is Australia's next great hope in the Tour de France. He's three months younger than me. Chris Foom, the four-time winner of the Tour, is seven months younger than me. Essentially, any ludicrous dreams I had of being a professional athlete when I was younger are now completely out of the question. For no other reason than physiology. As we get older, our bodies don't recover as quickly. Our eyesight fades. Our hearing goes. It takes us longer to recover. But God isn't like that. God is as fresh today as he was when you were born or when your grandmother was born or when your grandmother's grandmother was born. He does not grow faint or weary. And his understanding is unsearchable. If there is anyone who under can understand what you're going through, it's God. As difficult as it may be, his understanding is unsearchable. There are some things which we understand at the time or very soon afterwards. There are other events which we grow to understand in 5, 10 or maybe 50 years' time after they happen. And there are other events which we will never understand until we're standing before God and we're able to ask him. Just because we don't understand something doesn't mean that God doesn't understand it. It doesn't mean that God isn't pained by it and it doesn't mean that it's right. God is everlasting. He created the world. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah doesn't respond to the complaint by saying to them, no, your way isn't hidden from God and he doesn't disregard you, which is how I probably put off. He responds by saying, look at who your God is. Look at what his characteristics are. Is this the God you really think your way is hidden from? 
or your right is disregarded by. He goes on to verse 29 on what God does. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Did you notice the change? Suddenly our God is very personal. In verse 22 it said, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And now Isaiah is saying he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. This is the same God, high above the heavens and beside us giving us strength. Or verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. But if anyone in that nation is weak or faint, God will increase their strength. Indeed, Luke tells us that every one of the hairs on our heads is numbered. What God does, despite how wonderful and grand he is, what he does is get alongside his people. He will give power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Our God is a God who gets down beside you and props you up when you have nothing left. It's a picture of a personal God that despite his grandness is still intimate, loving and caring. So what are we to do? Verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Or in the NIV, But those who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The command if we want to renew their strength is to wait which can also be translated hope. This is in direct contrast to the verses around it, which focus on effort and tiredness. Verse 28, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives us power to the faint, again, to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youth shall fall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted but they who wait, this is a change, on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The contrast is between trying to achieve under your own strength and seeking to prevail in your own power as opposed to waiting and trusting in God. Between doing it by yourself or trusting that it will be done in the right time, in the right way. Verse 31 tells us those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. The best explanation I read of this verb wait is as follows, and I'll quote. The key is the word wait. What does it mean? To wait on the Lord means to live in confident, eager suspense. It means to live with the tension of promises revealed but not yet fulfilled. This waiting is not killing time. It isn't sitting around drumming your fingers. It is waiting on tiptoe, waiting with eager longing. It is forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead and pressing toward the goal. It isn't erratic bursts of hyperactivity within a general pattern of boredom. It is steady, rugged progress, sustained by the conviction that the display of God's glory in Christ is yours. 
In Exodus 19, the Israelites had passed into their third month after leaving Egypt. The people made camp at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses went up the mountain, and this is what the Lord said. Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if indeed you will obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. One of the striking features of the Exodus is that it was God's doing. His people knew that they had the promises, but they had become slaves in Egypt, a bit like being exiles in Babylon. Can you imagine how far away living in the promised land felt if you were a slave in Egypt? But yet the Lord took them out of Egypt. He used Moses and Aaron, but it's very clear when you read Exodus that it's God the agent of change. He took his people out of words, out of Egypt, in the words of God himself on eagle's wings. There are many promises that I look forward to. I look forward to the end of death and of being reunited with family who have passed away. I look forward to the end of diseases which destroy and seem to attack those who are weakest in this world. I look forward to the end of people dying of starvation. I look forward to the end of evil, cheating and slander. I look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. I look forward to the return of Jesus who does not grow faint or weary, whose understanding is unsearchable, who gives power to the faint and to him who has no might he increases strength. I look forward to the return of Jesus that came to the earth in human form for our sake. As Christians, we believe Christ died and was raised again to life and that because of that, our sins have been crucified in his death and that we can have new life through him. But we don't have this yet and we look around us at the world and the afflictions of sin are still rampant. Life is hard and I I really feel it's okay to say that. I'm not the best person at getting to know others so, and I'm not the best at showing you who I am either. But I know that many of us here have our struggles and we get exhausted and things wear us out. The mindset of this world is to strive harder, to do more, to overcome the challenge and to succeed. But success is wholly defined by how famous, rich or beautiful you are. There's nothing wrong with hard work. Indeed, the Bible commends it. But we shouldn't be running the race on our own. Think of Exodus. The Israelites killed a sheep, spread the bread across the the doorway and left slavery with riches and bounty and set off on a long trek across the desert where they had water and food for 40 years and their sandals did not wear out. Is this the God that you're trying to push out of the way as you try to achieve in your daily life? Perhaps more than we should be as Christians, we are people of this world. So much so that by 10am tomorrow, I think that most of the, for, for most of us, the cares of this world will have pushed aside most of what we've done here at church today.
So I want to leave you with three challenges. The first one is increase your view of who God is and what he can do. Read Isaiah from start to finish and think about this is the God you believe in or who you could believe in. And remember that despite his strength and energy and understanding, he's also a personal God who can give you strength. He's a personal God who sent his son to earth to die on the cross so that you and me could have new life. Secondly, I want you to think about what's making you weary. What are you trying to achieve without God? What if you decided is your challenge and that you don't need the Lord with you on? With what do you need to stop and wait? And lastly, I want you to think about how you can get the truth of the greatness of God and the need to wait for him into your heart so that by 8pm tomorrow, it still has a chance of being there. Write it on your fridge. Write it in your diary. Put it on your desktop. Put a sticky note next to your computer or put a note in your lunchbox. Put a reminder in your phone. How will you make sure that you remember the greatness of God and the need to wait for him at 8pm tomorrow night? Because the chances are at 8pm tomorrow night you'll probably need this message more than you do now. The answer to the ongoing question is the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. This is the Lord to wait for. This is the only one to have trust in and to have faith in. As a prayer, I'd like to finish by reading Psalm 130. So please pray with me. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption, for he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins.